Who doesn't love a fairy tale ending? Am I right? I mean, from the time we're kids, we, uh, we grow up loving stories that have, you know, the happily ever after ending. And uh, I can remember as a kid, you know, some of my first memories growing up of, of uh, happy endings, fairy tale endings, and they lived happily ever after. I mean, probably no stories typify the fairy tale ending better than Disney, right? And, and we remember some of the great Disney classics where, where the heroes lived happily ever after. Whether you're talking about uh, Cinderella, you know, marrying Prince Charming, or Snow White and the Seven Doors, Pinocchio, Dumbo. I mean, so many more. These are all, you know, great fairy tale endings where the heroes end up living happily ever after. But, but, it, but we also see, for example, other genres that have the, the fairy tale ending, right? How, how about Westerns? How many Western fans are there out here? I, I love Westerns, probably my favorite category of movie, and I've seen them all, whether, you know, the old black and whites all the way to the, the present day. I love the cowboy stories, right? Especially the ones where, where the hero rides into town and he saves the town from the, from the, you know, the group of bandits and he rides off into the sunset with the girl. You know, I mean, there's, there's nothing better than... Than, than a great Western cowboy story. But, but we also see these happy endings, these fairy tale endings in real life, right? And, and probably there's no greater example of the fairy tale ending than in, in the whole realm of sports. How many of you remember back in 1980, the miracle on ice, right? I mean, the classic, the, the, the great hockey victory of the United States against the Soviet Union. I mean, you had this group of college kids back in those days, right? College kids playing literally professional men, some of the best hockey players who have ever lived and they beat them in the 1980 Olympics. It, it was classic. I mean, Herb Brooks, you know, our Minnesota hero. And then, you know, how, who, could we, who, who could forget the 1991 World Series, right? I mean, the classic. Even to this day, sports writers still consider this the greatest World Series of all time. I, I think, if I remember correctly, like five of the seven games went to extra innings. If you remember game seven, that classic Jack Morris pitched the entire game, refused to come out in the 10th inning. He told Tom Kelly, there's no way I'm coming out of this game. He went and he pitched that 10th inning. And then if you remember, bottom of the 10th, Gene Larkin gets up to bat with the bases loaded. And Gene Larkin hits a deep single into the outfield and Dan Gladden crosses home plate and the twins go crazy. I mean, it was awesome. I mean, one of my favorite memories as a kid. And then, of course, who could forget five years ago when Brett Favre made his triumphant return to Lambeau Field where he belongs, <laughs> home where he belongs, enshrined in the ring of honor at Lambeau Field, right? Talk about a fairy tale ending, happy endings. Well, you know, friends, if there was ever a story in the Bible that was set up for a fairy tale ending, it's the story of Gideon. I mean, everything we've seen so far in Gideon's story would lead us to believe that we're going to come to the end of Gideon's story, and the final words are going to be, and they lived happily ever after, right? I mean, we find Gideon at the beginning of chapter 6 in his story, where, where the Midianites are oppressing the, the Israelite people, the Midianites who were, who were 
Arabic people from the Middle East, they would come up like hordes of locusts and they would just pillage the land. And where do we find Gideon at the beginning of chapter 6? He's hiding in a hole in the ground, right? He's hiding in a wine press because he's in fear like the rest of the Israelites about these Midianite raiders. But God inspires Gideon. God calls Gideon a mighty man of faith, and and he inspires Gideon to trust him and to walk by faith, and God proves himself faithful by showing Gideon sign after sign, miracle after miracle, and finally Gideon is clothed by the Spirit of the Lord, and Gideon raises up an army, and God in his empowerment empowers the people of Israel to fight against the Midianites. We saw last week in Pastor Stephen's great message how God wanted to prove his faith and power beyond a shadow of a doubt and literally weeded out the Israelite army down to 300 men. And God said, I am your deliverer. I am going to prove my faithfulness to you. And so God inspired Gideon and these 300 men to drive the Midianite forces, a hundred some thousand forces out of Israel And they pursued them all the way out of the land. And we're going to pick up the story today as as Gideon and his 300 continue in their pursuit of the Midianites. But again, I mean, this whole story has been set up so far for us to think that, you know, this is going to be a great ending. And Gideon's going to live happily ever after. The Israelites are going to live in peace. But sadly, what we're going to discover this morning is that Gideon's story would not end with him riding off into the sunset and the nation of Israel living on in peace and harmony. No. Instead, what we're going to find is Gideon's story would end not in triumph, but in tragedy. Gideon's life is truly a cautionary tale to all of us about how even those who are called and anointed by God can succumb to the temptations of the world, the flesh, and the devil. And and it's also a a cautionary tale about why staying vigilant in our walk with the Lord is so important. Staying faithful, pressing on in fidelity to Christ. So we're going to look at Gideon's story this morning, and and I want to show us this morning as we go through our text, I'm going to highlight five observations for us this morning about where Gideon went wrong. We're going to look at the choices that Gideon made and the decisions that Gideon made, where Gideon went wrong leading to his downfall, and then we're going to wrap it up this morning by looking at three points of application for how we ourselves can avoid the fall of Gideon. Because as we're going to see, I think we are all susceptible to the very same things that ultimately led to Gideon's downfall. We're in Judges chapter 8 this morning, verses 1 through 35. I'm going to read it from my Bible. You can follow along in your own Bibles or on the screens behind me. Starting in verse 1, uh, remember Gideon and his 300 uh, man army, they have driven the Midianites out of Israel. Uh, we saw at the end of chapter 7, Gideon invited the other people of Israel to join in the battle. Ephraim has now driven the Midianites out. They conquered two Midianite princes. And this is where we pick up the story in chapter 8. Then the men of Ephraim said to him, to Gideon, what is this that you have done to us? Not to call us when you went to fight against Midian. Remember, in the beginning, it was just Gideon and his 300, right? And these 300, under the power of God, had driven the Midianites out. 
And now Ephraim, here's this, this prideful tribe, one of the largest tribes in Israel. You know, what, wait a minute, why didn't you invite us? I mean, we're the ones that should be leading this fight, right? They're, they're upset that they weren't invited. And they accused Gideon fiercely. And Gideon said to them, what have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the grape harvest of Abiezer? The Abiezer, again, was the region where Gideon was from. God has given into your hands the princes of Midian, Oreb, and Zeb. What have I been able to do in comparison with you? Then their anger against Gideon subsided when he said this. And Gideon came to the Jordan and crossed over, he and the 300 men who were with him, exhausted yet pursuing so he said to the men of Succoth, please give us loaves of bread to, to the people who follow me, for they are exhausted, and I am pursuing after Zeba and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. And the officials of Succoth said, are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna already in your hand, that we should give bread to your army? So Gideon said, well then, when the Lord has given Zeba and Zalmunna into my hand, I will flail your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. And from there he went up to Penuel, and he spoke to them in the same way. And the men of Penuel answered him as the men of Succoth had answered. And he said to the men of Penuel, When I come again in peace, I will break down this tower. Now Zeba and Zalmunna were in Karkor with their army, about 15,000 men, all who were left of the army of the people of the east. For there had fallen 120,000 men who drew the sword. And Gideon went up by the way of the tent dwellers east of Noba and Jogabah, and he attacked the army, for the army felt secure. And Zeba and Zalmunna fled, and he pursued them and captured the two kings of Midian, Zeba and Zalmunna. And he threw all the army into a panic. Then Gideon, set, then Gideon, the son of Joash, returned from the battle by the ascent of Harry's, and he captured a young man of Succoth, and he questioned him. And he wrote down for him the officials and elders of Succoth, 77 men. And he came to the men of Succoth, and he said, Behold, Zeba and Zalmunna, about whom you taunted me, saying, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna already in your hand, that we should give bread to your men who are exhausted? And he took the elders of the city, and he took the thorns of the wilderness and briars, and with them taught the men of Succoth a lesson. And he broke down the tower of Penuel and killed the men of the city. Then he said to Zeba and Zalmunna, Where are the men whom you killed at Tabor? They answered, As you are, so were they. Every one of them resembled the son of a king. They're, they're, they're trying to appease Gideon a little bit here, right? Like, like we're, we're, we're captured. No, those, those guys were great fighters. They were all princes. They were warriors like you, right? They're trying to appease Gideon. And Gideon said, They were my brothers, the sons of my mother. As the Lord lives, if you had saved them alive, I would not kill you. So he said to Jether, his firstborn, rise and kill them. But the young man did not draw his sword, for he was afraid, because he was still a young man. Then Zeban Zalmunna said, rise yourself and fall upon us. For as the man is, so is his strength. And Gideon arose and killed Zeban Zalmunna. And he took the crescent ornaments that were on the necks of their camels. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And Gideon said to them, Let me make a request of you. Every one of you give me the earrings from his spoil. 
For they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And they answered, we will willingly give them. And they spread a cloak and every man threw in it, threw in it the earrings of his spoil. And the weight of the golden earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold. That's about 42 pounds of gold, roughly a million dollars worth of gold in today's value. Think how far that would have gone for a nomadic tribesman like Gideon. Besides this gold, crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian, and besides the collars that were around the necks of their camels, and Gideon made an effort of it, of this gold, and put it in his city in Oprah. And all Israel whored after it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. So Midian was subdued before the people of Israel, and they raised their heads no more. And the land had rest 40 years in the days of Gideon. Jerobel, the son of Joash, went and lived in his own house. Remember, Jerobel was the name given to Gideon back in chapter 6. Now Gideon had 70 sons, his own offspring, for he had many wives. And his concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son. And he called his name Abimelech. And Gideon, the son of Joash, died in a good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash, his father, at Oprah of the Abiezrites. As soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again in a horde after the Baals and made Baal Bareth their God. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side. And they did not show steadfast love to the family of Jerobel, that is Gideon, in return for all the good that he had done to Israel. What a crazy story. What a sad story, really, when you think about it. Here, here is this guy that God had raised up to be his mighty man of valor, the one who would deliver Israel, the, the judge who would drive the pagan armies out of Israel and lead Israel into peace and, and back into the worship of Yahweh God. And that that's not what we see happen. Instead, in chapter 8, we see this cascade, this, this downward spiral of sin and wickedness and depravity in Gideon's life. Depravity that ultimately spilled over into the lives of his family and the people of Israel. As I said a few minutes ago, this is truly a cautionary tale for us, for all of us. I want to share five observations this morning with you about where Gideon went wrong. You know, how did this fall in Gideon's life take place? Where did Gideon go wrong? Well, observation number one, Gideon celebrated the wrong hero. Gideon celebrated the wrong hero. Our passage opens up with the men of Ephraim coming to Gideon, and remember, they're upset with Gideon because, you know, Gideon, why didn't you invite us into this battle? And Gideon, if you see here in verses 1 through 3, Gideon starts out attempting to, to pacify their anger. And, and at first glance, right, we read these words and we might think that, man, this was a noble and, you know, pretty savvy response to, from Gideon to the men of Ephraim, right? I mean, like, here they are, they're all upset, and Gideon's pacified these guys, you know. But friends, I want you to notice one important detail in Gideon's response to the men of Ephraim. Look, look, look at the words Gideon uses here in verses 2 and 3. Gideon said to them, What have I done now in comparison with you? 
Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the grape harvest of Abiezer? God has given into your hands the princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeev. What have I been able to do in comparison with you? Friends, did you catch that? What's all this I and you business here in this passage? Right? Gideon's all about my victory and your victory. And the reality is the victory over Midian that we saw last week wasn't the result of Gideon's or Ephraim's greatness. No, if you remember last week, the victory over Midian was all about God and God's greatness. Remember the the verses we saw last week, verse 9 in chapter 7, God says, I have given them into your hand. Verse 15, Gideon says, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. Verse 22, When they blew the trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against the army, and they all fled. Right? This whole victory over the Midianites was all about God and his power and his greatness. But here, Gideon pays lip service to God, and instead it appears that Gideon's more concerned with stroking egos. That's what his words about the grape harvest are all about in in verse 3. Gideon's like, look at, like, even my grape harvest can't compare to yours in Ephraim, right? Just like my victory is nothing compared to your victory. Gideon's just stroking egos here. And think about what a far cry this response is from what we saw back in chapter 5, the the response of of Deborah and Barak. Remember the last two judges we looked at? God, in the very same way, raised up Deborah and Barak, led them into a miraculous victory. And what do they do as a result of the victory? They're not stroking each other's egos. No, they write a whole chapter singing a song of praise to their great deliverer, their God, the God of Israel. It was he who saved us. He's the one responsible for the victory. And yet, here's Gideon, and and we're beginning to see this subtle shift where Gideon is taking credit for the victory. And he's giving Ephraim credit for the victory. And friends, I wanted to point this out. We already saw hints of this last week back in chapter 7. Remember, God said, I'm going to deliver the Midianites into your hands. But what did Gideon tell the army of Israel? Right? You're going to crack the pots. You're going to blow the trumpets. And then in verse 18, when I blow the trumpet and all who are with me, what are you going to yell out, Gideon says? Gideon says, when you go and raid the Midianites, you're going to yell out for the Lord and for Gideon. Wait a minute. <laughs> For Gideon? The, the, the guy who, like a chapter earlier, was hiding out in a wine press? This was never about Gideon. This was always about God. God was Israel's deliverer. God deserved the glory. And friends, here we see that, that sadly, instead of praising God and leading the men of Ephraim into praise of God, their true deliverer, here we begin to see the first evidence of a sinful seed that's taking root in Gideon's heart. What is that seed? It's the seed of pride. Pride has taken root in Gideon's heart. And what is pride? Friends, understand this this morning. Pride is the most dangerous of sins. 
In fact, it's the sin that's at the heart of every other sin. Pride is simply the failure to acknowledge that God is sovereign over everything. And as our sovereign, he alone deserves our allegiance, our devotion, and our praise. The prideful person says, God is not the king of my life. I'm the king of my life. And so pride, put most plainly, is simply men and women living in rebellion against God, choosing our way over God's way, seeking our glory over God's glory. And pride is dangerous business, friends. God's word warns us about the consequences of pride. Take a look at Proverbs 16, verse 18. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Those are some stark words of warning, friends. God takes pride very seriously. Why? Because we cannot usurp God's authority. He is the creator. He is our king. He is our sovereign. And friends, let me tell you this. You cannot expect to experience God's blessing in your life when you're trying to usurp his authority, ruling your own life as king, when he alone is truly the king. And this has been the tragic lesson that God's creation has had to learn from the very beginning. Remember the very first sin that that brought the the curse into the world back in Genesis chapter 3? God had placed Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, this perfect environment. God said, you can live and enjoy the blessings I've given you. All I ask is you stay away from the one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the serpent comes. Satan comes. And what does Satan say to Adam and Eve? Whoa, 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 wait a minute. God said you couldn't eat from that tree? Don't you know? Don't you know if you eat from that tree? Your eyes are going to be open, and you can be like God. What was the original sin, friends? It was pride. Adam and Eve saying, we want to be like God. And that brought the curse of sin into the world. Pride has always been at the root of our rebellion against God. And every time we sin, even to this day, friends, we are choosing our way over God's way. We are essentially saying, I'm going to be God myself. And if we've learned anything from the book of Judges, choosing our way over God's way never leads to promise. It always leads to peril. And Gideon had allowed this seed of pride to take root in his heart. The men of Ephraim had allowed this seed of pride to take root in their heart. And Gideon, as God's judge, didn't do anything to to eliminate this pride. Rather, he pacified it and promoted it. And as we're going to see, this seed of pride would eventually come to full bloom in Gideon's life with tragic consequences. Observation number two, where did Gideon go wrong? Gideon embraced the wrong attitude. In verses 4 through 17, we we see this tragic story of Gideon's interactions with the men of Succoth and Penuel. I think as we would all acknowledge, one of the strongest fuels for the fire of pride is when we feel that someone has wronged us or slighted us or, or insulted us, right? 
I mean, how dare anyone act like God over me when I'm God, right? I mean, that's essentially what what our pride does to us, right? We set ourselves up as these little gods. We think we rule our lives. And who are you to insult me, right? Who are you to act like a god over me? But that's what happens when two sinful people playing God start interacting. We forget who really is God, and we start to treat one another as if we are God, and we inevitably insult and hurt and wrong and slight one another Because again, you got two little gods bumping heads. And this is what we see taking place here in the second scene in our passage of Gideon's ongoing descent. Gideon and his army are chasing the Midianites. They're worn out from a full day of battle. They're tired. They go to the men of Succoth. They say, hey, look, can you guys spare some bread? You know, can you give us some rest? And we're, we're tired. And the men of Succoth, they say, look at, like, why would we give you bread? You don't have the Midian kings yet. And, and I mean, their, their response kind of makes sense, right? Because if they help Gideon and, and his 300-man army, right? And the, the Midianite kings go away and they regroup and they find out who gave aid to the enemy. Who do you think the Midianite kings are going to come, come back against, right? They're going to come back against Succoth. And so the men of Succoth, they're just trying to save their own skins. Like, look, it, we're not going to help you. Bring back the kings and then we'll help you. And what does Gideon do? He pronounces a curse on them. Gideon says, oh, I'm going to come back. And when I come back, I'm going to whip you guys with thorns and briars. And you're going to get what you deserve. And then he goes up to the city of Penwell, not far from Succoth, and he asks them for aid. And the men of Penwell respond the same way. And Gideon says, look, when I come back, I'm going to tear down this tower, the city's stronghold, their place of refuge. I'm going to destroy your place of shelter, Gideon says. Now, now, the people of Succoth and Penuel may have treated Gideon and his men uncharitably here, but friends, Gideon's response was clearly out of line, especially considering what God's law had taught Israel in regards to their relationships with one another and and responding to such matters. Remember back in Leviticus chapter 19 what, what God said to Moses in the law for the people of Israel. God said to Moses and the people of Israel, you shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself, for I am the Lord. And friends, Gideon completely disregarded God's word. He completely ignored the law of God in regards to how we are to treat one another, how we're to treat our fellow brothers and sisters. And, and here again, we see the ugly fruit of pride continuing to grow in Gideon's life. And, and as a result, instead of being the deliverer of God's people, what is Gideon doing? Gideon is now turning into a despot over them, right? Gideon was the one who was called to heal Israel, and now he's hurting them. He comes back to Succoth and he gets a list of the names of the elders of the city and what does he do? He gets the thorn bushes and the briars and he whips them. And then he goes up to Penwell. Not only does he tear down their tower, it says he killed all the men of the city. How sad. But friends, this again is the tragic nature of pride. Pride always ends up elevating the self over service of others. 
we see this here in Gideon. And sadly, just like in Gideon's story, this pride, this elevation of self over the service of others, it always ends up leaving devastation in its wake. All the time. How many families have been destroyed because a husband or a wife or both say, I'm going to live for myself instead of seeking to serve my spouse and my kids. Pride does that. Pride destroys homes. How many churches have been divided because of a prideful disunity? People thinking they know better than their pastors and their elders or, or, or pastors and elders leading not as faithful shepherds but out of a prideful spirit in it for their own gain, in their own power, their own prestige, their own reward. I mean, friends, nothing will devastate a church quicker than instead of serving one another, acting in selfishness. How many times have we seen political leaders, right, instead of serving the people that they were elected to lead, using their position for, for their own personal gain, their own power, padding their own bank accounts. Friends, pride does this. Pride destroys families. Pride divides churches. Pride brings down nations. And we see this warning in the life and actions of Gideon. Thirdly, this morning, where did Gideon go wrong? Gideon chased the wrong goal. In, in verse 10, we discover that Gideon and his army have pursued the Midianites far into the wilderness to, to a place called Karkor. This was 81 miles from Penwell, deep inside enemy territory. Gideon's no longer in Israel. He's way outside in enemy territory. That's why the Midianite kings fled there. They thought they were safe. They were out in the wilderness in their homeland. And now, friends, we need to recognize here, Gideon has already accomplished the mission that God had called him to. Gideon was called to save Israel and drive the Midianites out of the promised land. And he's done that. So, so the question we need to ask is, what is Gideon doing here deep inside enemy territory? Well, in verses 18 and 19, we discover the answers. We discover that Gideon is chasing after a personal vendetta. Take a look at verses 18 and 19. Gideon catches up with Zeba and Zalmunna. And he asks them, where are the men whom you killed at Tabor? Oh, so now we discover this is about something more than just the mission God had given them to drive the Midianites out of Israel. He's worried about something that took place, this, this killing of the men of Tabor. And, and the kings answered him, well, as you are, so were they. Every one of them resembled the son of a king, right? They're scared. They're trying to pacify Gideon now. And Gideon says, they were my brothers. They were the sons of my mother. And you killed them. And if you would have let them live, I would have let you live. But because you killed them, my brothers, I'm going to do the same to you. Friends, Gideon's battle here is no longer about protecting Israel or promoting God's glory. It's become about seeking his own personal revenge. Again, here we see Gideon driven by his pride instead of God's praise. 
And isn't it interesting? Gideon's pride has taken him 81 miles from home, deep into the wilderness, to a destination of death. And friends, that's how the sin of pride and our rebellion against God always works. We turn from God, we stray far away from him, and we end up winding up in places we don't want to be. Places of death and pain and misery. Yeah, I'm reminded of the story Jesus told in Luke chapter 15, the story of the prodigal son. Talk about a parallel with Gideon here, right? The prodigal son who had every blessing in his father's home. But the prodigal son in his pride says, no, 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 I don't want to live under my father's authority. I want to do life my way. And so the prodigal went to his father and and he says to his father, Dad, give me my inheritance now. I want to go live life on my terms. And the prodigal took his inheritance and he went to a faraway land, far from his home. And he took his inheritance money and he spent it on parties and girls and gambling. I mean, he was living large, baby. Until the money ran out. That's what the word prodigal means, by the way. Wasteful. The wasteful son. Wasted all of his blessings on frivolous worldly living. And when the money ran out, so did the friends. There's a lesson for you young people this morning. A lot of people in our world will think you're big stuff when the money's flowing and the parties are flowing. And, but when that runs out, you'll discover real quick who your true friends are. The prodigal son didn't have any real friends. And he found himself destitute and alone in a faraway land and he was hungry and so he ends up taking a job at a pig farm. And he's so desperate, he ends up eating the very slop he's feeding the king, the, the pigs, just to satisfy the hunger pangs in his own stomach. And Jesus says this prodigal is sitting in this pig slop, and he starts thinking to myself, himself, man, I had it better at my father's house, and the servants, the, the servants at my father's house have it better than this. And he says, maybe my dad will let me back and take me in as, as just a common servant. And so the prodigal starts heading home in his guilt and in his shame. And if you remember the story, as he approaches his home, what does he see? He sees his father standing off in the distance, watching, waiting, hoping, to see his son return. And the father runs out and embraces his son with open arms. Because that's who our God is, a God of amazing grace. And I think there's a lot of us who can relate to the prodigal son here this morning. And the good news for any of you fellow prodigals is that if we're willing to turn from our sins and return home, we will always find our Heavenly Father waiting for us there with open arms because he's a God of amazing grace. For Gideon, though, sadly, his story wouldn't end like the prodigal sons. Gideon would return home, but not in a spirit of repentance. 
Instead, he'd continue his downward spiral as his pride ultimately comes to full bloom. We see that in observation four and five. Observation number four, where did Gideon go wrong? Gideon promoted the wrong worship. Verses 22 through 28, here we find the greatest tragedy in Gideon's story. Gideon, who began his service to the Lord by tearing down idols back in chapter 6, now ends his story by literally promoting a false idol. In verse 22, 23, the the men of Israel come to Gideon. They want to make Gideon king. We're going to come back to that in observation number 5. But but Gideon, instead of becoming king, he asked them, you know, hey, give me all the spoils of war. Give me all the gold earrings. Gideon collects this treasury, 42 pounds of gold, over a million dollars worth of gold. And what does Gideon do? He makes an ephod of this gold. An ephod that our passage tells us ends up leading the people of Israel into even deeper apostasy and spiritual rebellion. Now, now what is an ephod? An ephod was the breastplate. It was a vest that the high priest of Israel wore. Okay, so, so an ephod was the symbol of spiritual authority. And the ephod had two stones in it, the Urim and the Thummim. And these two stones were used by the high priest. We, we're not exactly sure. That we, we think it was almost like flipping a coin. And the priest would use these stones to help discern God's will for the people of Israel. So he would go to the Lord. He would pray. He would flip the two stones. If they landed heads up, it was a yes. If they landed heads down, it was a no. And so that would be the way that God would speak his will to his people. And so what does Gideon do here now? Gideon takes the gold. He makes himself a high priest's ephod. And it says that he takes this ephod, and where does he take it to? He doesn't take it to Shiloh, where the tabernacle is set up, where the priests are serving God. No, he takes this ephod back to his hometown, back to his hometown, the very place where he had earlier destroyed an idol. He now sets up a new idol where he now sets himself up as the spiritual authority of Israel. And the people of Israel come to him now to discern God's will. I mean, he's completely setting up a false religion here. And it says that the people of Israel hoard after this false religion and it served as a snare to Gideon and his whole family I mean here we see the ugliness and depravity of Gideon's pride on full display instead of leading Israel to Yahweh Gideon has led Israel to whore after this ephod this false idol and yes the the passage in verse 28 tells us that the land had rest for 40 years but understand this friends it was a compromised rest It wasn't a rest where Gideon led the people of Israel into service of God. It was a compromised rest where the people of Israel were whoring after this false idol that Gideon had created. I mean, what a tragedy. And and then observation number five, where did Gideon go wrong? Gideon adopted the wrong lifestyle. So so the men of Israel asked Gideon to be king, you and your son and your grandson. Gideon said, no, 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 I'm not going to be your king. We only have one king. God is king. But notice, Gideon's words don't match his actions, do they? Gideon says, no, I won't be your king. God's our king. But what does Gideon do? He goes and spends the rest of his life living as if he's the king. 
He collects all the spoils of war. He gets rich off these spoils of war. Again, spoils that belong to God, not to Gideon. He ends up marrying a whole bunch of wives. Polygamy in the ancient world was a sign of royalty, a sign of prestige. And so Gideon marries all these wives. And again, not only, not only does he marry these wives as a sign of his own pride and prestige, but, but remember, friends, polygamy was a violation of God's will for marriage. God designed marriage to be between one man and one woman in a committed relationship for life. So Gideon's not only setting himself up in a, in a kingly fashion through these polygamous marriages, he's also betraying God's will for marriage. And then we find Gideon satiating his lust with a concubine. He, he's got a personal mistress on the side. So now he's committing fornication. What is fornication? It's having sex with somebody you're not married to. He's fornicating. He's committing adultery against his legal wives, which was a sin against God in itself. And he's exploiting this mistress because she has no legal right. She's, he's simply using her. And then she ends up having a kid. And you want to see how much of a king Gideon thought of himself as? He names his son Abimelech. The name Abimelech literally means the son of a king. What a tragedy, friends. Here's this guy who began with so much promise. Gideon brought peace to the land of Israel. In over 40 years, he had this great opportunity to lead the Israelites into a deeper walk with the Lord and pass on a legacy of faith. But he squandered that opportunity. Instead, Gideon spent the remaining years of his life serving his own selfish wants and desires. And next week, Next week, we're going to see the bitter fruit of Gideon's legacy as we find his entire family consumed by the same evil pride they witnessed in their father's life. What a tragedy. What a waste. And what a warning for each of us here today. Friends, I want to leave you this morning with, with three quick points of application. Three points of application so that we might avoid the mistakes of Gideon, that, that we might avoid the, the fall of Gideon in our own lives. Application number one, how do we avoid the fall of Gideon? Number one, remember, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. I see Pastor Rick smiling because he preached that for over 30 years, and I've been preaching that for four years since him. The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. What is the main thing? The main thing is the gospel, the gospel of grace. Friends, what was Gideon's main problem? How did things go so wrong with Gideon? Friends, Gideon's problem was he forgot who he was in relation to God. In other words, he forgot who, that who he had become, this mighty man of valor, this great warrior, this man who had driven the Midianites out of Israel, who he was and who he had become was all because of God's grace in his life. It wasn't because of anything that he had done. It was all a gift of God's grace. Friends, understand this. It's hard to be a prideful person when you recognize just how desperately needy you really are. And Gideon forgot that reality. 
He forgot that God found him hiding in a hole and lifted him up and declared him to be his mighty man of valor and clothed him with the Holy Spirit and led him to great victory. It was all God's work in Gideon's life. And it's the same way with us, friends, when we forget who we are and who God is and our sin and depravity and his amazing grace. Friends, that's a recipe for pride to take root in your heart. It's why the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 2, 8, and 9 says, For it is by grace we are saved through faith. This is a gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. Friends, we need to keep the main thing, the main thing. And that's keeping our eyes on the amazing grace, the gospel of grace. Remembering who we are and who God is and what he's done for us. Application number two, how do we avoid the fall of Gideon? Friends, remember, spiritual disciplines matter. Did you notice here in chapter 8, throughout the whole chapter, there's not a single hint in Gideon's life of any ongoing cultivation of his relationship with the Lord. Not once do we see Gideon turning to Scripture. Not once do we see Gideon going off alone in quiet time in prayer and meditation. No, not once do we see Gideon rallying a band of brothers around him to hold him accountable. I mean, we don't see any of that in Gideon's life. Gideon is literally the poster boy for how not to grow in your relationship with the Lord. Friends, I've said this before. What you feed will grow and become the dominant influence in your life. And if you're feeding your worldly, sinful, fleshly passions and lusts and desires... That's going to grow, and it's going to become the dominant influence in your life. On the other hand, if you're feeding your spirit with the word of God and prayer and brothers and sisters in Christ and fellowship and accountability, that will grow and become the dominant influence in your life. Spiritual disciplines matter, friends. Application number three, how do we avoid the fall of Gideon? Remember, the Christian life is a marathon, not a sprint. And God desires faithfulness from us for the long haul. You know, it's really interesting. Gideon ends up in God's hall of fame of faith. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 32. Gideon's there. Like, I'm going to ask God about that someday, right? I mean, like, I mean, obviously Gideon did this, these great deeds of faith, but man, he had a big fall but he's still in god's hall of fame of faith but friends i think it's interesting there's a reason that hebrews 11 is immediately followed up by hebrews 12 verses 1 and 2 hebrews 12 1 and 2 says therefore since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance what did gideon fail to do He didn't run with endurance, did he? God says, run with endurance, friends, the race set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. God says, run with endurance, friends. Why? Because as we've seen in the life of Gideon, even faithful men and women can be tripped up by the sin of pride and the lusts of the flesh, and the lies of the enemy. And this is why God says, run with endurance. The 
Christian life is a marathon, not a sprint. And God wants faithfulness for the long run. Let's keep our eyes on Jesus, friends. And let's keep running that race. Let me close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, once again, you have given us a powerful example to encourage us and to inspire us. Sadly, today it wasn't a great example, but I pray, Lord, we might learn from Gideon's mistakes. I pray that we might learn to walk faithfully and to pursue you in faith and fidelity and give you all the glory and honor and praise that is due. And that we might remember the good news of the gospel that that you have saved us, not because of anything that we have done, but solely and purely out of your amazing grace. God, help us to to seek to cultivate spiritual disciplines in our lives, to, to help us to avoid the fall of Gideon so that we might continue to persevere and run the race with endurance that we might live faithfully and and leave a legacy behind us, Lord, a legacy of faith, encouraging those in our lives to follow you as well. Lord, if there are any of us here this morning today who who currently aren't running that race and, and, and pursuing you in faithfulness, maybe we're living for our own lusts, for our own pride, our own selfish desires. Lord, help us, as the author of Hebrews says, to lay aside our sin and fix our eyes firmly on you and continue to run with endurance the race set out before us, Lord. Help us to be people who live to please you, not people who live to please ourselves. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your Holy Spirit who inspires us to live this truth out. Help us to do so this week, and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, I'm going to invite you to stand for our benediction this morning. And uh, as is the case all all Sundays, we're going to have some of our elders here at the front of the platform. If you'd like prayer today, uh, we would love to pray with you. Our benediction comes from 2 Corinthians 13, verse 14. Now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. God bless you and have a great week. Hi everybody, Pastor Jason here, and I want to thank you for joining us for our online worship service this morning. I pray it's been a blessing to you. I want to encourage you now to visit our church website, www.lakesfree.org. There you can find more information about our church, you can find updates on the latest happenings here at Lakes Free, and you can find an abundance of resources for further teaching, equipping, and encouragement. So please check that out. We also have a prayer link there on our homepage where you can submit prayer requests, and we would love to pray for you. And if you'd like to continue your worship by giving to the work of the Lord here at Lakes Free Church, we have a very clear and simple giving link there on our homepage, and we would appreciate your support. I want to thank you again for being with us this morning. I pray that you have a blessed week, and we will look forward to seeing you soon.